Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. Today, we're going to take a look at wrong thinking. Now, just as a background for this study, let me make a statement just to get you thinking with me. Any time that we have an area in our life where we consistently have trouble and there seems to be no apparent let-up, we're going to find that there is some area of wrong thinking. We've got some wrong thinking going in that particular part of our life. And there's never going to be a permanent change in our situation apart from a change in our thinking. See, the problem begins right here in the mind with wrong thinking. Therefore, the problem must end right here, too, with a change of mind. Now, I think most of us are familiar with the fact that Satan's battleground is the mind. And if we win that battle in the mind, we're not going to have to fight anyplace else. And the way we win the battle in the mind is by allowing our mind to be renewed to the Word of God. Now, before we talk about the renewal of our mind and wrong thinking, First, let's look at one of the main reasons why we get into wrong thinking to begin with. Now, this truth is going to help you to understand yourself. Now, I want you to get a pencil and mark these three things down because every person searches to find three things. Number one, he searches to find his identity, who he is. Number two, he searches to find meaning to life. In other words, what's the purpose for living? And number three, he searches to find acceptance. He needs to feel needed. Now, consciously or subconsciously, we're going to search for these three things because it's an instinctive need. We need to find our identity, our purpose for living, acceptance. And when we don't come up with the right answers to any one of these questions, a dissatisfaction comes in and nothing works. And we go on searching. In fact, some people go on searching for a lifetime because they never find the truth, so they continue to feel dissatisfied. Okay, let's look at each one of these three areas individually. First, the search for identity. Real identity is not based on what we do. It's based on who we are. I want to say that again because our real identity is not based on what we do. It's based on who we are. And it's also not based on who we think we are. Now, the Word of God is the final authority of who we are. And until we come to that conclusion and see the Word of God as the final authority of our identity, we're going to go on struggling and striving because we're going to have a false identity based on other sources rather than what the Word of God says. Let me give you some examples. Some women live out their life drawing their identity from their husband. Now, if their husband's a successful businessman, she may feel good about herself because she's the wife of a successful husband. But if that's her only identity, that's not enough. And there'll come a time that that's not going to satisfy. Some parents draw their identity from vicariously living their life through their children. Other people try to draw their identity from the title that's out in front of their name. Now, we could name on and on different ways that people mistakenly try to come up with who they think they are. But because it's not the truth, they're never satisfied. And there's an unrest. And they go on subconsciously searching for true identity. Now, the second thing that all people search for is meaning to life, purpose for living. Now, we could name all day wrong places where people search to find meaning for their life. But there's a lot of places that sound okay on the surface, and they're still not the right place to look, so they still get wrong answers. 
One missionary spent the first half of her life on a foreign mission field trying to search for something that would make her feel good about herself, something that would give meaning to her life. And, you know, that sounds so right. In fact, she spent years of sacrifice and years of service just searching for meaning. Well, she finally realized that her motives were wrong, and so she went home. But during that next year at home, she found that true meaning to life because she came into a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that personal relationship gave her the true purpose for living for which she had been been looking. Then she went back to the mission field. She spent five more years, and she said the next five years were more productive than all of the other years combined. Meaning to life, true purpose for living, cannot come out of what we're doing. See, it too has to come out of who we are in Jesus Christ. True purpose for living evolves out of our relationship with Him and out of our obedience to the one who is our identity. See, that's what gives us purpose for living. Now, a lot of people operate in that missionary principle. They dedicate their lives to different things, different maybe service clubs or goodwill organizations. And they spend their whole life dedicated to these different things, searching for meaning and searching for purpose. But it's all wasted if our reason for living is not coming out of a personal relationship with the only one who can give true meaning to life. Even people who are ministering to other people, if it's only meeting a need to feel needed, then it'll become a sacrifice in time. You know, in one of the large universities, the professors in the counseling classes probe into the reason behind why the students want to become counselors. Now, they're trying to find out if becoming a counselor is from a need to feel needed or if it really is a gift to call on their life to be a counselor. And then the third search is for acceptance. And once again, true acceptance only comes out of the truth of who we really are in Jesus. Therefore, searching for acceptance any place else other than in Jesus, it's going to bring hurt and rejection and disappointment. Because when we're trying to get our acceptance from somebody else or from something else, then in time, disappointment's going to come in. Now, the three main places that people mistakenly search for acceptance is in works, in things, possessions, and in relationships, who they know. In fact, most people try to obtain that acceptance through the works. If I do enough nice things for you, surely you're going to love and accept me. Or if I serve on enough committees and I do a good job, surely people will finally look up to me and they'll respect me and accept me. Or if I make good enough grades or excel in sports, then I'll be accepted by my parents or by my peers. Sometimes you'll hear a wife and you can tell that the thinking in her mind is if I can just cook good enough meals, if I can keep my house clean, then my husband will think highly of me. And see, that kind of thinking finally brings us to the thoughts, if I do enough good works, if I'm good enough, then surely God will love and accept me. It's very important now to do these things. I'm not against the fact that we do things, but if a person is doing them just to be accepted, then it's not going to bring any lasting satisfaction. All of these good things that we do have to be an overflow of our relationship with Jesus. In other words, when we come to a place where we love and appreciate Him and appreciate the fact that He died for us when we didn't deserve it, and we simply are doing these things out of an overflow of love and gratitude toward him, then it becomes satisfaction. Then it falls into the right place. 
And if our motivation is anything else, then people will feel it and it'll come across false. Now, this is very important. It's usually a very subconscious thing when a person is performing to gain acceptance. Now, think with me. You know, it's usually not a conscious thought. They don't usually go in and say, well, I'm going to do thus and so just so people will like me. It's usually a very subconscious thing. And that's why a Bible study of this kind can be so helpful to get us to be honest with ourselves and to look at some of our motives. Then other people search for their significance or their acceptance in things. If I have a nice enough house, if if I drive a fine car or wear expensive clothes or own a lot of life's extras, then people will accept me. Then I'll belong. Now this erroneous thinking will lead to deception because none of these things have the power to bring acceptance. Then you'll find other people search for acceptance in relationships. If I run with the right crowd, then my peers will accept me. If I can get a date with this certain boy or this certain girl. Many young girls and and even guys have compromised their moral values and they've sacrificed their entire reputation for the satisfaction of just temporary acceptance. Some people think if I get married and have a family, I'll be okay. There's a lot of singles and they don't feel like they're getting acceptance and they think, oh, if I could just get married, then I'd be accepted. Now, all people are going to search for identity, meaning to life, or a purpose for living, and acceptance. They're going to search for those three things, and that's okay because these are normal instinctive drives. But we must remember that these things can only be found in a person. In fact, in a particular person, and that person is Jesus Christ. If it's found in anything or anyone else, it will eventually fail because what happens, deception comes in, and that deception leads us into wrong thinking. And because of the wrong thinking in our life, then things began to go wrong on a consistent basis. Now, this has already happened in a lot of people. Therefore, they need to go backwards up the list. They need to find the area where there's constant failure. And then they need to look for the wrong thinking in that area that doesn't line up with the Word of God and realize that the deception came in because they either sought their identity or their purpose for living or they tried to get their acceptance from something or some place else other than Jesus. Now, mark this down. Number one, our identity comes from realizing that we've died and we've been resurrected inside of Jesus Christ and his identity is now our identity. And number two, we need to realize that our purpose for living, what gives meaning to our life, comes only from realizing that there is no meaning apart from Jesus Christ. I can remember the exact place where I was when this realization came to me. I had started up a stairway and I was about halfway up And it all of a sudden hit me that there is absolutely no reason for even living life apart from living it in obedience to Jesus Christ. There was no reason for living. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is just a speck in comparison to eternity. And it's going to be over. But everything we do that is done because we love the Lord and because we're wanting to carry out His purpose in our life, Those are the things that will last for an eternity. And all of a sudden, I realized for the first time, there is no purpose for living. There is no meaning to life apart from Jesus. And I remember walking on up the stairs, and when I walked into that room, I was changed. 
and I never thought the same way again. My entire life, my entire focus, every goal, every vision I had from that moment forth was to live in accordance with the Word of God and let the Word of God be my final authority because that was the only thing that brought purpose. See, any service that we render, any good deeds that we perform will all turn to ashes if it's not done out of an inexpressible gratitude for what Christ Jesus has done for us. He is our only lasting meaning for life. He's the only purpose for living. And then number three, the only lasting acceptance, the only true acceptance is the realization that God loves us unconditionally. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have already been accepted unconditionally in the beloved. We belong. We've already been accepted because of the blood of Jesus. See, once we belong to him, we will never be any more accepted by Jesus than we are right now. Think about that. Once we have a born-again experience and we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we belong to him and we'll never be any more accepted by Jesus than we are right now. No amount of work, no amount of toil can buy us one more ounce of acceptance because his acceptance of us is not based on our performance. It's not based on what we do or what we don't do. It's based on the fact that he loves us, loved us enough to die for us while we were still sinners. Now, either we're going to accept our identity from Jesus, we're going to find our purpose for living in Jesus, and we're going to derive our total acceptance from him as a free gift, or we're going to continue through life finding it necessary to try to earn it or to look for it in all the wrong places. Now, God knew that it was impossible to earn any one of these three. And that's why he gave all three to us as a free gift. And when we insist on trying to earn them, we're going to every single time enter into some degree of wrong thinking. Because, see, that's where wrong thinking comes from. It comes from looking for one of these three needs in the wrong place. Now, for just a moment, I want you to mentally go over in your mind some areas in your life where you know that things consistently don't go as well as you'd like. Now, I'm not talking about something that maybe just went wrong last week. I'm talking about where you have a constant and consistent problem in a certain area. Now, with God's help, you're going to be able to see where a search in wrong places for one of these three needs, your identity or your purpose for living or to gain acceptance, open the door to wrong thinking and how that wrong thinking started an area of failure. Now, to help us see the dynamics of this, I'm going to take seven areas that are common areas of distress, and we're going to talk about wrong thinking that opened the door in these areas. Number one, we're going to look at poverty and lack. Now, I need to explain what I mean by poverty. When your whole lifestyle is that of needing financial help, Or when you just live from one financial crisis to the next. That's what I'm talking about when I say poverty. See, sometimes families have had poverty on their family for generations, and they've never even stopped to realize that that's abnormal. Now, most people are not in poverty, but they deal with consistent lack. Now, not everyone dealing with lack will have the same wrong thinking, but this is important to hear. All continuous lack does come from some kind of wrong thinking. We just have to pinpoint what it is and correct it. I'm going to cover under this four common areas of wrong thinking that leads to lack. A, 
Some people never get ahead because they subconsciously think that they shouldn't. It's tied to a low self-image. They're searching to find their identity in their own self-worth instead of in who they are in Jesus. And they're always going to feel unworthy because we are unworthy apart from him. So they go on thinking deep down that they don't deserve any kind of abundance. They don't deserve to be blessed. Let me give you an example. Two persons might be completely without earthly possessions. And one might see himself as broke while the other one sees himself as poor. Do you see the difference in the thinking? See, the first one sees it as a temporary condition. He just sees himself as broke. While the latter, the one who sees himself as poor, sees it as describing his personality. That becomes his identity. He sees himself as a poor person. Now, the reason he thinks this way is because he's looking to self for his worth instead of looking to Jesus, who's the one who gives us worth. Now, all of us may have times when we're broke financially, but if we know who we are in Jesus and our thinking is right, we're going to see it as a temporary condition. We'll know that God is the one bringing in the abundance. He's the one meeting our needs. Not that we deserve it in and of ourselves, but it's ours because of God's abundant mercy. Now, that's right thinking. And if we continue to think that way and we're obedient to do what he tells us to do, we will begin to see the cycle of lack broken. We'll see it stopped. But if a person's thinking is wrong, even if that person's mate with right thinking breaks the poverty cycle, that person still won't enjoy the prosperity. That person will still feel guilty that they're being blessed until their thinking changes too in that area. Okay, the next wrong thinking that keeps the door open to lack, B, is searching for material blessings to the extent that we put them on a higher priority than God. Now, that's going to close the door to God's financial blessings, and it's going to cause lack. Now, many people think, oh, I'd never do that. But, you know, that's an easy trap to fall into. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22 tells us that the kingdom of God can be stolen. And many times we just quote the fact that the kingdom of God is stolen because of worries and cares. But we've got to realize that scripture also says that the kingdom of God is stolen from us because of deceitfulness of riches. Anytime we seek after things, that's wrong thinking. Matthew 6 verse 33 says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the righteousness of Jesus Christ and then all of these things will be added. So seeking things is wrong thinking and it will lead to problems in that area of our life. Okay, C. Now, whether we realize it or not, the lack of appreciation for what we already have is one of the biggest areas of wrong thinking that stops the flow of blessing. It's absolutely necessary for us to genuinely appreciate God for all that he's doing for us and to appreciate him also for the people that he uses to bless us, maybe family or maybe someone else. Then when our thinking gets right, and we began to appreciate what we already have, it opens the door for God to come in and bless us further. Then D, a lot of people have wrong thinking in the area of financial management. Now, they may have a lack of knowledge in that area, or maybe they've just never learned the principles of stewardship. Maybe they've never been taught to give and to tithe. They've never planted any seed, so there's no crop to come back. Now, when they have a big need, they may be always fantasizing that somebody's going to come along and bail them out rather than trusting God and believing Him to show them the way. 
See, that's what a lot of people do. They just live in a fantasy world that somehow there's going to be some wonderful thing that's going to happen to bail them out at the last moment. Well, we're going to find that it's very important if we have problems in this area. Many times it's very important to go to someone who can give us just some good financial advice and to help us to change our thinking in some areas. There's times when in the deception of where we are that we just can't see our way out. And God has people that he can put in our pathway that can give us the advice and the help and point us in the right direction. Now, we could spend all day on poverty and lack, but if that's a bad area for you, if that's someplace where you consistently see failure, God can and he will show you ways in which you can close the door and move on into right thinking. Okay, number two category of wrong thinking is the area of insecurity. Now, there's a lot of insecurity in the body of Christ. A lot of people who feel intimidated and inhibited, and that ought not be. We who have Christ Jesus living in us, we should be the most secure people in the world. When we began to realize that I died and I have been resurrected inside of him, therefore now I don't have to tackle anything alone ever again because I have the wisdom and the ability of the God of the universe dwelling on the inside of me. We're going to find that that kind of right thinking will destroy the insecurity on the inside of us. You know, I've learned to do something that has really helped. Whenever I'm about to teach or to counsel or to do something, especially something new, and insecurity or fear begins to rise up, I just stop whatever I'm doing. And on the inside, I acknowledge that God is living on the inside of me. And I just began to realize that His Holy Spirit is there. And I began to ask the Holy Spirit to take over. And when I do that, peace and security just began to flood me. And as my thinking becomes right, and I began to realize who I am in Him, that security just takes over and brings that peace into my mind and into my emotions. Then later, the moment that fear and insecurity began to rise up again, I can know immediately that I'm in wrong thinking. I can realize that again, I'm looking to myself. And see, that's where insecurity comes from. Thoughts of looking to self to get the job done, whatever the job may be. And that's one of the masks of selfishness. Anytime we get to a place where we're in self-reliance. Okay, number three is double-mindedness. Now, this is a stumbling block, and it obviously comes from wrong thinking. It comes from one moment believing God and believing his word, and the next moment thinking on what the world has to say. Now, that's why James 1, 6 through 8 says that the double-minded man is unstable. That means his thoughts are unstable. He's thinking on the world one time. He's thinking on the word of God the next. And that scripture goes on to say, don't let that man expect to receive anything. Now, so often it's those subconscious thoughts that are double-minded. See, our deepest convictions are the ones that determine the outcome of our life. It's those things that we believe are settled deep down inside of us, those deep convictions. Now, if deep down we doubt the authority of God's word, if fear is bigger to us than faith, then what we pray and what we believe are two different things. That's double-mindedness. Now, the Lord spoke these words to me very clearly once. He said, there are no what-ifs and no others in godly faith. And I thought about that. And I thought, you know, those are two of the biggest sources of doubt for most Christians. 
Number one is the what if. But Lord, what if this or what if that should happen? See, that's doubt and that's double-mindedness. And the number two source of doubt is looking to others and seeing areas where it appeared that the word didn't work in their life. Now, God said there are no what ifs and no looking to other people in true faith. So we need to eliminate the words what if from our vocabulary. We need to get our eyes off of people. See, we can't know what's in their heart, good or bad. Faith or fear. That's why Romans 3 verse 3 says, If some do not believe, will their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, it's saying, if somebody doesn't believe the word of God, is that going to nullify the word? Is that going to mean that the word's not true? Verse 4 goes on to say, may it never be. He's saying, of course not. He said, instead, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. So he's saying, even if no one else believes, God's going to be found true, and everybody else is going to be found a liar. And then he says, but you be justified by your words. In other words, you're going to be judged by whether you look on other circumstances and say it didn't work or whether we keep our eyes on God's word and we say it can't fail. You see, that makes all the difference in the world. Anytime we look at circumstances in someone else's life or in our own life, there's going to be many times that there's going to be the temptation to think, oh, Lord, it looks like it didn't work. But if we can put our eyes on God's word and say, oh, Lord, it can't fail, then we're not going to be in that double-mindedness. Okay, number four area of wrong thinking is a spirit of control. Now, there are two main types of control. One type of control is to gain power. Now, that one comes out of pride and selfish ambition, usually out of an impure heart. And, of course, that kind of control is out of wrong thinking. But it's the other type of control that I want us to look at today. This is the one that we see most often. Now, this is control motivated out of fear. Now, let me tell you what happens. Look at the dynamics. A person begins to entertain fear thoughts, fears that things are not going to work out right in a certain area. And the more that person thinks on that fear, and they think on the fact that things aren't going right, the more they begin to see going wrong until they finally decide that they're going to get in there and control the situation or control the person in an attempt to make it work out right. Now, it's easy for that to become a very subconscious way of life because if you've ever jumped in and controlled a situation once and it worked, well, it seems like the easy way out. So it gets easier and easier then to try to jump in and control that situation the next time. Therefore, many people have fallen into a habit of control to one degree or another. And it causes all kinds of havoc. You know, many times it causes the person being controlled to rebel. Sometimes the person being controlled gets into rejection and hurt and insecurity, and they begin to think, well, maybe I don't have what it takes. Maybe I I can't do it. And they start feeling insecure. Sometimes they just get angry. In other words, it causes anything but unity. It's very destructive. Well, think back to the three original needs. The person that's controlling is looking to himself as source. He's drawing his acceptance from his self-ability to make it work. Now, the first change in thinking has to come from the realization that even if it did fail, God's still going to love me and he's still going to accept me because his acceptance of me is not coming from my performance. 
So that's the first way that a control person needs to change their thinking. And then the next change in thinking is to realize God doesn't control us and force his will on us. Neither will he allow us to control anyone else or force our will on them. Now, once we began to see this kind of control as a lack of trust, then we simply need to change our mode of thinking. We need to come to a place where we realize, Lord, I'm not in trust. So I'm going to change my thinking from the reasoning of what can I do to make it work? See, that's what a control person thinks. What can I do to make it work? And we need to change that over to, Lord, I trust you. And I'll let the whole thing fall on its face before I jump in there and hold it together by control or manipulation. Now, sometimes God will tell you something to do in obedience, but obedience is different from control. When by our reasoning, we're jumping in and we're trying to make things happen. You know, it's amazing how many times we all try to think for one another. And then we get irate when someone won't listen because we justify that thinking by realizing Well, I'm trying to do it for their own good. And that's the way we justify ourselves. Now, I do need to make a clarification here. It is not control to require godly obedience out of your children. Now, that's simply operating in your line of authority. That's our responsibility. God requires us to be responsible for training and teaching our children and requiring obedience out of them. But it becomes wrong And it brings bad results when we carry that line of authority and we stretch it into areas where it doesn't belong. See, many unhealthy situations have been created in homes where fearful parents try to either drive their children or to think for their children. And the reasons why parents get into that kind of wrong thinking and the reason why they think it's okay to think for their children is because they're subconsciously entertaining thoughts of fear that their child is going to make a mistake. And of course, we just don't want our children to make mistakes. We try to shield them. And a lot of parents have thoughts like, oh, if I don't do something, they're going to do it wrong. So they jump in and do it for them. Now, you'll see so many unhealthy situations arise when a mate tries to control his or her partner's thinking or when they try to control their children past the responsibility of just training the child. Now, no good fruit comes from control, no matter how good the intentions might be. The end doesn't justify the means. It's wrong thinking. Now, I'm going to give you a definition of control. Anytime you want another person to do something or to think in a certain way and you try to make it happen or you lose your peace if it doesn't happen or if you feel threatened, then that's control. And we're going to find that control always comes out of wrong thinking and it always causes problems. Okay, number five. Some people have constant fears and all fears come out of wrong thinking. You know, when a person is fearful, what are they thinking about? They're thinking about whatever it is that they're fearing. We're thinking on that fear. And our mind is like a magnet. And it literally draws that to us in the spiritual realm. It's kind of like chewing on a piece of meat that's got a lot of gristle in it. and just gets bigger and bigger, you know. See, that which is held in the mind for a length of time, those things that we think on and we hold there, In other words, our predominant subconscious thinking is going to draw it to us because it's the law of attraction. 
Now remember that your present condition and your circumstances many times are outward manifestations of the thoughts that you've held inside and the things that you believe. Now I've looked at the areas where I'm secure and where I'm happy and and where things are going right. And I realize that those are the areas where I've gotten God's thinking firmly embedded down in my subconscious thinking. Where I'm not just giving mental assent to the word, but wherever I have come to a place where the word is my final authority and where I know that I know that I know that I know that that word is true in that particular area, that's where I have my peace. That's where I'm secure. And you know those areas where you're thinking straight. Those are the areas where you have peace and where you have trust in God. Okay, let me give you an example. For several years, we probably have never driven off of our property without praying or at least confessing the promise that God has made that where the blood is, the destroyer can't come in. So as we go off of our property, we'll usually say, Father, I thank you for the blood of Jesus. I thank you that it covers my life. It covers everything here on the property. And where the blood is, the destroyer cannot come in. Now, that's not mental sin. That's embedded in my subconscious thinking. And I've prayed and and believed that. Now, I walk in peace in that area because my thinking in that particular area is in line with God's word. And so there's no fear there. Now, two different times we've had someone come on the property and steal something. One person came on the property and stole a car out from under our carport. And another one stole a jar of dimes and a watch out of the house. Now, because that's an area where God's truth is embedded in my subconscious thinking, there was never any real turmoil. Now, yes, there were some fear thoughts that tried to come and tempt. Because any time we have something stolen, we feel vulnerable. And the temptation is there to think, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? But... It was kind of easy to resist those thoughts because my thinking was right in that particular area. So it was relatively easy to remind myself, Lord, I'm trusting you. I don't know what happened, but I know the blood was there and I know the protection was there and I'm not going to be disappointed. And sure enough, in both cases, our goods were returned. The guy who stole the car turned himself in and confessed and our car was returned. The guy who stole the money and the watch got caught for another burglary And even though we hadn't turned him in, he brought the police out in the country, pointed up to our house, and he said, I don't know who lives there, but I stole a certain amount of money and a watch out of that house, and restitution was made. Now, we hadn't even turned him in, except to God. (laughs) When our mind is renewed, and when we put on the new mind of Christ, and we begin to think God's way, and we think according to the Word of God, And we don't get double-minded and think on God's way for a little while and then get in fear over what the world's saying. But if we stay steadfast on the Word of God, it releases the power and authority in the spiritual realm that changes the circumstances, literally. Now, I have some other areas where I haven't totally changed my thoughts to conform to God's Word. And I've got some other areas where my thinking is wrong and where fear's there. And I look at those areas and things are not going the way they should. So every time we find an area where we consistently have problems, we need to look at our thinking and see if our thinking is totally, 100% lined up with the Word of God. Okay, number six, I want us to look at anger. Now, all anger is not sinful. That's obvious from Paul's statement when he says, be angry and sin not. However, very often anger will lead to sin 
unless we deal with our thoughts. See, wrong thinking can channel anger into bitterness. Sometimes it channels it over into unforgiveness, into hate, into verbal abuse, sometimes into self-pity. And we always feel justified. We often call it righteous indignation. So we need to check our anger and see if there is an element of selfishness in it. You know, have you ever had some wrong done to you or to someone with whom you were in sympathy and you found yourself mulling the incident over and over in your mind? And you did that until vengeful thoughts began to run in your mind? See, that's wrong thinking. It's a real danger point. Have you ever subconsciously found yourself pondering ways to get even with that person? Or maybe ways to get that person, quote, told off? See, if you're honest with yourself, you can probably recall times when you've played out the whole scene in your mind where you very cleverly got that person put in their place. And it felt so good that you played that scene over and over again in your mind. Well, that's wrong thinking. See, revengeful thoughts are always wrong thinking. And this comes from looking to the wrong place for our identity. We're looking to ourself to be judge and and jury. And it's wrong, even if our discernment happens to be right. Now, you may see an injustice and a godly anger may come up inside of you. But deal with the anger correctly. Don't let that anger just lie there because Satan will send it in the wrong direction if we just leave it. And he'll tempt us to vent that anger in the wrong places. He'll tempt us to vent the anger at people. See, the God kind of anger deals with the sin. God may have us pray. He he may tell us something to do. But anger that's not dealt with properly will lead to wrong thinking. Okay, number seven. I'm going to end on this one. I included marriage because it's an area where Satan tries so hard. Now, it would be impossible to list all the possible wrong thinking that can cause a bad marriage. But I'm going to name six statements that are common areas of wrong thinking in marriage. And if you find yourself thinking any one of these statements, you will always have some degree of problems in your marriage. Because, see, you're sowing bad thinking. And wrong thinking always reaps bad results. Okay, let's look at six examples now of wrong thinking in marriage. Number one, some men have this subtle thought. Some men think, well, my wife has a mind of her own. The word says she's supposed to be submissive to me, and I'm going to see to it that she's submissive or else. We're going to find that conflict and disunity will plague that marriage because it doesn't line up with the word of God. Now, yes, the Bible does tell the wife to be submissive, but what does it tell the man? See, right thinking for the man would be to think, my job is to love my wife as I love my own body. My job is to cherish her and protect her all the days of her life. And it's my privilege to make her happy. And you know what's ironic? The man that thinks that way is the one that's going to end up having the submissive wife. See, God's way is so backward to the world. In the world, we try to make things happen. But when we do it God's way... That's when God brings about the desired result. Okay, number two wrong thinking in marriage on the part of women. Some women think, well, the Bible says that I'm supposed to respect my husband. Well, now that's fine if he does something worth respecting. But he's going to have to earn it first because he really does some dumb things sometimes. Well, we need to realize respect is a choice. The Bible doesn't say that we respect only if they deserve it. The Bible says that the woman is to respect her husband. 
And when a woman dwells on thoughts of respect for her husband, a very interesting thing happens. It will draw that very attribute out of him. You know, make a list of things that you do appreciate and respect about your husband. You know, there's bound to be some things that you respect. There's bound to be some reason why you married him. So begin to make a list. They're there if, if you look for them. And then begin to dwell on those things and begin to respect him for those things that you admire. And what it will do, it will attract more areas of places where you can respect him. Number three, a lot of men think I'm a busy man. I'm trying to make a living. I'm just going to leave the discipline of the children and I'm going to leave the spiritual upbringing of the children to my wife. She's got the time. I'll let her take care of that. Well, see, God's order of the home is being violated. Any man too busy to be the head of his home is not following God. See, a man's family is to be the priority right under his allegiance to God himself. That should be his very next priority. And when we get our priorities right, it's amazing how God will multiply our time. Okay, number four, another wrong thinking. Many times women will think, well, the Bible tells me to be submissive, so I can't do it any other way except to just decide that whatever my husband thinks, whatever he does, whatever he says, I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to react. I'm not going to say a word. I'm just not even going to have an opinion. That's the only way I can submit, so I'll just do it that way. Well, that's wrong thinking. God never intended a woman to be a doormat. The final decision does lie in the hands of the husband. But the wife's input and her godly wisdom can be a tremendous asset to the man who is secure enough to be able to hear it and consider it. But the wife needs to renew her mind to the word of God so she can contribute good thinking when it's the right time. And her mind needs to be renewed and she needs to be led by the spirit so she'll know when to keep quiet when it's the wrong time to speak. And many times, God will show us ways to pray to change situations that are wrong. We can change them through prayer. We're told that we're to submit as unto God. Now, that doesn't mean that we submit to things that would violate the word of God. But God says, submit as unto him. And as we allow our mind to be renewed to the word of God, and as we allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit, we're going to find that we can be an asset to our husband without taking his place without going over his head. We can be an asset and submit to him in godly ways. Okay, number five, another wrong thinking. If I were only married to someone else, I could be happy. That's fantasy. That's fantasy. That kind of thinking will block the possibility of God's ever being able to make your marriage happy and successful. As long as that thought is allowed in your mind, your marriage will never have a fighting chance to be what God wants it to be. Now, number six, this wrong thinking is a similar attack, and this can be very subtle. But some people, deep down, they think, well, if it doesn't work, I can always get a divorce. Now, a lot of times people will deny that they think that way. But as long as divorce is in a person's mind as a possibility even if it's in their conscious mind or in their subconscious mind. If that's a plan B, they will never go on to God's highest. You'll never push on for the high calling of God for your marriage, and you'll never give God the chance to do what he wants to do if divorce is there in the back of your mind. See, God can do miracles if we believe that he's the God of the miraculous. 
He wants us to give him a chance. But as long as divorce is tucked away as an escape hatch, there is no way for a marriage to be a success with that kind of thinking going on in the mind. Thoughts like I married the wrong person or I don't love my mate any longer are contrary to everything in God's word. Now we could name on and on wrong thinking that causes marriages to crumble or to be less than God's best. Now these are just samples of wrong thinking in marriage. But look at your own marriage. You can fill in the blanks. Renew your mind and think the way that God thinks about marriage and see what a miracle God can bring. Expect the best. Wherever you are in your marriage, decide that you're going to reach higher by changing your thinking and believing God for the best. Now, Jesus said that we were to take up our cross and follow him. Well, now that cross represents death. That's what happened on the cross. Christ died. And taking up our cross daily means realizing and appropriating the fact that we died with Christ and we've been resurrected on the inside of him. That's how we daily take up our cross. Realize that it is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ living in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Realizing that we are a new creation. Therefore, because Christ lives in us, that resurrected power is there to renew our mind. Now, whatever area it is that you want changed in your life, go to your thought life and allow God to renew your thoughts in that area so that your thoughts will begin to line up with God's word. When you do that and continue to do that until God's word becomes the deep conviction down on the inside of you, then you'll begin to see those circumstances change. Father, I thank you today that you love us. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us as a gift the ability to be able to have Jesus Christ as our identity, to be able to find purpose for living in Jesus Christ and to be able to find acceptance through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you've given that to us as a gift. Thank you that we don't have to search and and look for that everywhere. But Father, we can just stop and turn to you and receive every bit of that from you and receive the peace and the joy that comes from that. Now, Lord, I'm asking that any areas where we have problems, consistent, continual problems in a certain area, Father, I'm asking that you'll Help us to hear from you the areas where we have wrong thinking and that we'll allow you to renew our minds so that we'll begin to think the way you think, Lord. That that'll become embedded down in our subconscious and that your thoughts will be so ingrained in us that, Lord, we will begin to see the circumstances change. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.